And my mother, who at that time was probably 75, um, had had several cocktails. And she just says, you know, girls, I loved being pregnant. I could drink and drink and drink and never get drunk. And I just sort of looked at her and thought about myself. And I said, you know, I could have been Frank Lloyd Wright. Isn't that funny? Oh, I've never heard you tell that story. I knew your mother. Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the world of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of another weekend's. But first, I had the distinct privilege of sitting down with Paul Zoll, father of the founder of Mockingbird, author of Grace and Practice, and numerous other books, and Duo Dickinson, an architect's architect, and also a renowned author and friend of Paul Zoll. I give you Paul, myself, and Duo. I am here at the St. George's Church, a historic place with, it's a historic meeting in a historic place. The three of us have never been here together. Paul Zoll, the inimitable and the animating force behind the animating force, David Zoll of Mockingbird Ministries. Paul Zoll, how are you? I'm very well, Scott. Better to be with you. Thank you. That's very kind. And Duo Dickinson, who is an architect a connoisseur of cocktails, which I tell, I'll tell you, yeah, I don't let many people order off a cocktail menu for me. And I did it with this man, and I was not disappointed. And you have written several books. Actually, nine, but who's counting? <laughs> okay, nine, several, nine. And you've recently been nominated to be on the ECCT, the Episcopal Church of Connecticut, the diocese, the standing committee. Yep. We'll see what happens. I've been nominated. Is there a sitting committee? Well, I think that I will be sitting during the meetings because I won't stand for not being elected. But if he actually wins, it'll be the lying committee because he'll be he will have fainted. Yeah, <laughs> it'll, be, yeah that, it'll be a shocker. I will take it lying down. You you have been a guest on one of my favorite podcasts, <laughs> Unorthodox, and you told a story in that appearance about uh, the difference between being in the vestry and your first synagogue board meeting. Yeah. Indeed. Was yeah. it, what, what are the main differences? Well, in a vestry, well, let me give you two. There's, there's, there's early vestry and late vestry. Early vestry would, would normally have at least four, sometimes eight bottles of wine on one side. There'd be some fairly awful cheese and some saltines. Now that was 20 years ago. Now, it, since then, the food has gotten much better because there are fewer wasps on vestries and more people that know good food. But they've essentially banned booze. And what that really means is they're fat, sober people on vestries now, which is actually kind of a buzzkill for me. But abandon since, hope, all you who enter here. <laughs> being a card carrying endomorphin, you know, definitely with a bad BMI, I, I have no trouble with the fat part, but or the food part, but it would be nice if 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 the powers that be would let us get just a little bit drunk. Convivial you want some convivial beverages. You're right. Anything just to loosen us up. I mean, come on. Well, we are going to have a conversation today. First, we wanted to say a few things about this historic place, which, Paul, someone very famous 
was almost shot here, right? And I don't mean shot like as as far as a documentary. I mean, uh, they, were, were there, there were Canadian Marxists that came down or something? Um, a lot of things happened in this church, and uh, what uh, makes St. George's Episcopal Church on 16th Street and Stuyvesant Square such a touching place is that it really was the um, uh, instantiation of a low church Episcopalianism and evangelical Episcopalianism before the Civil War, which was exceedingly non-hierarchical. And uh, I'll get back to your point about uh, the shooting in just a minute, but the the, this was an attempt to uh, create a non-hierarchical church within the Anglican or Episcopal tradition that was largely successful. Thus, for example, it was not Eucharistically centered, but it was Word of God centered, so the pulpit was in the middle like a Baptist church until 1913, and the people would take communion four sides around the table as opposed to facing east uh, as an altar, and that um, was a way of incarnating a picture of the seriousness and unmediated character of the relationship of people and a forgiving God. And later on, in the later part of the 19th century, this church, which achieved an extraordinary um, impact on the city of New York, it was the first really active church in all sorts of social progressive ways, even though it was conservative theologically. J.P. Morgan, the famous financier, was senior warden of the parish, who in fact was a very devout and sentimental evangelical episcopal. Episcopalian. People don't realize that about him. But um, at one point uh, in the late 19th century, uh, while uh, J.P. Morgan himself was ushering, a, um, a uh, an aggrieved husband uh, got into the upper gallery and took a shot at a man named Dr. Marco, who was one of the ushers, and killed him. Dr. Marco had been cuckolding this poor chap who got into the uh, gallery and uh, after that murder which was extremely a celebrity murder during church while taking the offering yeah. um, Morgan resolved never to be an usher again at the church he loved <laughs> I should dearly. hope so <laughs> so that's an anecdote that roots it in, his, in human existential truth but the fact is as duo and you need to talk to him about this in a minute um, this was a place that was actually connecting with real people who actually existed in New York City at the time. And it was jammed until the sort of 1960s began to, it began to require new leadership. And now it has brilliant leadership in the form of the Reverend Jacob Smith. Brilliant. And might I add, sartorial. Oh, Anybody yeah? that knows Jacob, he's an excellent dresser. So this is, I mean, it's a, it's duo, you're an architect. Last time I checked. Of yeah. sorts. Uh, yeah. no, you're an architect's architect. So, yeah, what can you tell those of us who are cultural Philistines like myself <laughs> about architecturally about this building that stands out to you? What's well, intriguing? The, the biggest part about this building is that it's it's a reincarnation. The building had an enormous fire, was completely rebuilt, and in getting rebuilt, there are some very interesting Disney esque aspects to the Undercroft, where there is this this sinuous. Ramp, which is more, it's not calling it a ramp is not doing it an injustice. It's actually this sort of like flow of curvilinear wall to wall red carpet that leads you down with a braided rope handrail, leads you down to the undercroft, which they obviously lowered by a couple feet to make it habitable. You see these old vaults and arches and you see these little square two foot high concrete 
feet that sit below the original columns and bearing walls. And there's all sorts of reinvented Gothicized Disney-esque features to make this into really the image of a, of an Anglophilic place of, of worship. If really from the, the, the fire Paul was when the fire was in, I want to say 1862, yeah, but it might've been earlier than that. And it really, and they really reinvented the whole place. It was, it's a very, so, and, it, and it's had a number of facelifts and it's, it's, it's got a lot of what I call mitigations. In other words, parts of the building are being reused as other, as, as unintended things. So it, I think the the story that Paul wove for me this morning about having this altar that was in the middle and that now it's there's a naked back wall that has got a light that illuminates it very brightly to I think a stark crucifix right it's sitting there so I mean it's 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 definitely a church that represents the fact that for me the reason why I've chosen to be an episcopal person even though I'm a cradle episcopalian is that the huge bandwidth not only of the present tense church, but in the scope and remarkable evolutionary polyglot history of the Episcopal Church in America is something that turns me on. I I am so low church, I would like I would have liked to have called Paul not Reverend Zoll, but Mr. Zoll. And the fact that there's a there's there's a bust out front that Paul is telling me the show showed me where the the rector here was wearing not wearing a collar and you see his knotted tie in the his official bust as a rector made me made my heart go pitter pat. You know, it's it's interesting what fires will do in the lives of congregations. I know a Presbyterian church in Mendham, New Jersey. It's kind of, you know, mm. the central western Jersey, lovely town. And this church the mendham presbyterian church they sometimes they call it hilltop church because the sanctuary is on top of the hill it has burned down three times well, the wait, third, wait, that there might be a reason i mean it could be you know the arsonist fireman yeah, thing. exactly well the third time it was in winter and it was like in the 18th century or earlier and then the thing with the wheels with the water to put the they couldn't get it up on the ice they still have candlelight services on christmas eve i wouldn't let a candle within 100 <laughs> yards of that sanctuary we've heard of a friction fire haven't you <laughs> I I know the concept. Well, a friction fire is when a mortgage rubs, rubs up against an insurance policy. Oh, okay. All so, right. Yeah, so, you know, that could accidental damage. That's true. So, gentlemen, my here's my question. A lot of our listeners are pastors or church types of folks that say their prayers and are are committed to like like the life of the church. Seemingly uh, insignificant issue, but maybe a big issue. I know so many congregations now that are just, you know, they're being crushed under the costs mm. of a big building. And there are a lot of people, you know, like for instance, you know, Tim Keller's church here in New York, you know, for years, I mean, they grew to thousands and thousands with no building. Where are you guys at on church buildings? Tabernacle or temple? <laughs> are we tabernaclers or temple builders? I'm a tent guy. All right, I like that. You I start do I? Well, I'm on the property committee for the for the Connecticut Diocese, and we have about 160 parishes, and we've got about 170 buildings, and we have about two that are growing. So we've got over 100 that are steady state, and we've got 30 or 40 that are less than steady state, and we have 20 that will close in the next two years. All of them have real property. And part of what we had to do liquidating about 10 of them in the last two years is, is, and the challenge is, is to, to transition between a belief and faith in the corporeal, the what's around us, what we can see, touch, feel, use 
to the things that are more important, the things that bond human beings together that are not only reflected, they're only reflected in buildings, they're not caused by buildings. And one of the real psychic tugs in my own experience as a Christian is the fact that so much of my profession wallows in self-justification and the fact that build it and they will come, the fact that the environment creates the person. The reality is, you know, God, if God created everything, and I think he did, we are merely actors on a stage that we did not design. And for an architect, that's a hard lesson. God created middle school gymnasiums too. It's true. I want to um, I want to say uh, two two things about that. Um, I'm enormously impressed by the British television show Grantchester about the young uh, vicar of a church outside Cambridge, and there's no question that the power of the situations in which this young clergyman gets himself is directly related to being a clergyman of the Church of England with a local parish and a church. And there's something about the building that. Has enormous resonance, mm. and it just does. You walk into this church right here, which is coming back after many years of senescence, or, or uh, and now it's having recrudescence, uh, and you do feel that there's something spiritual or holy and important and set aside and quiet about the place. So I want to really emphasize that. The other thing I would say is that if the clergy of these hierarchical denominations, not just my own, which is duos, but all of denominations, were really preaching the gospel in a connecting direct way, these churches would not hold, would not be big enough for all the people. And I've seen this happen. I mean, I've actually seen old inner city plants, which were completely zoned for death, um, when they got the right member of the clergy or the right leadership who really preached an electrifying connecting message. It might not happen overnight, but over a five-year period, I've seen these churches in all sorts of cases absolutely blossom. For example, Calvary, which is only six blocks from here, you come on a Sunday and it's full, and people's lives are being profoundly changed. So, um, Wesley would have said that you can use the church if you have the right message, and then, of course, you have to have small groups and a tremendous sense of community, which you know mm. so well about. But I, I'm someone with two minds. On the one hand, I, I favor being at home and having a church in my house. On the other hand, I know the power of a building that you might create. The biggest thing is that is that what what has happened, sadly, because the the culture has transitioned in the Northeast and and the church has not transitioned to the culture in its, in its connect connectivity is that you've got churches are becoming the impediments to attendance. The actual physical plants are versus the encouragers. So it is a complete and total buzzkill to walk into a gigantic decaying building with even a terrific uh, music program or a terrific uh, rector and be distracted by the fact that you're being dripped on or you smell mold or that you're one of 17 people in a church designed for 250. That is killing. And it's killing. And and what has to happen is a, a very hard lesson is that when you're an architect, there's something called the program. And the program actually is the thing that determines what you build. Well, we have the buildings, but the program has changed. So now the program is we need to make people in the Episcopal Church feel that they, not only are they welcome, which is the standard church speak thing, but they are no different than anybody else that's in that church, and the church is no different than they are. The, the fact that there's been this opaque veil of religiosity in our buildings might mean a great deal to people, and it does. I'm, you know, I go to Trinity Church of the Green, which is the first Gothic revival building in America, 1816. This is our 200th anniversary of the sanctuary. People love the five 
the four uh, Tiffany windows that we have in it. And they love the Aeolian Skinner organ. They love all of that. And the properties here. So basically, I have to love it too. But I freak people out when I say, if that building burned down tomorrow, the church would still be there because the church is not the building. The church is God. And then the church is the people that go there. I, I knew a Korean minister who was actually in my hometown after I'd long since moved away. But young guy, and he was preaching at the Pittman United Methodist Church mm-hmm. and said to the congregation, maybe the best thing for us would be if this building we cherish so much burned down. It burned down that week. He thought, I'm going to be lynched. Like, really? It's so funny. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, sometimes well, I might sometimes you don't want to be a prophet. I, I mean, again, one is of two minds. I completely am with Duo, but I'm also aware that these buildings can have a tremendous inherited resonance that has yep. power. It is true in human life, Scott, when you said the building has to burn down, we have to burn down. Yeah. I mean, the essence of human growth seems to be almost inevitably linked to some form of complete uh, uh, burning down the house, to quote your favorite group, the talking <laughs> heads, you, the, the burning down of the house of the human ego. So there's a connection with pastoral, personal, existential life and the life of churches. Well, you can make a really, really strong case that that same existential crisis that causes the break that brings people closer to Jesus is exactly what... I think the Episcopal Church needs. I mean, I think the truth of the matter is that that there are innumerably, extremely wonderful human beings in the Episcopal Church. I mean, they're some of the greatest human beings I can even imagine. But for many of them, what makes them wonderful has blinded them to the fact that many people think that we are untouchable and judgmental, and and the overcompensations of of essentially trying to politicize worshiping God to me never works because you can never reach somebody from the outside in. They've got to feel from the inside out that you are them. And in order to do that, you got to break yourself down. And I think that the idea that the church could, could because of this horrific crisis of faith where, you know, a third, a third Episcopalians have just evaporated in the last generation. Um, that to me is a hopeful thing because I do think that the only way you can be relevant to people is if you, are dealing with a renewed sense of importance in their lives because of the fact that they've lost touch with anything greater than their own lives. I, I want to read you guys a couple sentences from a man who is near and dear to my heart and who I sat with in this room and consumed rye whiskey, Ooh. of all things, at Leah Leibowitz. And this was in Another Weekends for Mockingbird. This is a few sentences he wrote in a piece called We Are All Anthony Weiner. I'm not usually one for heartfelt confessions, but the news this week drove me to just the other side of intimacy. So here it goes. Until very recently, I weighed slightly more than 350 pounds. Nightly, I would feast on meals that could comfortably nourish a gaggle of refugee children. I measured out my life with tablespoons of ice cream, swallowed mindlessly by the freezer late at night, or pizza pies of noble proportions chewed over with joy and washed down with wine. I ate even as my waistline grew larger and my breaths more shallow, even as everyday activities required rest, even as loved ones intervened and told me again and again and again that I was gorging my way to morbidity. Eventually, I listened and turned to steam cauliflower and soul cycle, another desperate measure you should take when the scale <laughs> is stacked against you, and within seven months, dropped the aggregated weight of the American Olympic women's gymnastics team. <laughs> I feel much better now, and I'm grateful for my transformation, but every time I hear the sound of teeth on tacos, say, or the smell of or smell the submission of soft butter to warm bread, I wonder if I won't be fat again soon. I wish I could say for certain that the answer is a definite no, but I can't. My conviction is only as strong as the next meal. 
Why am I telling you this? Because I know what it's like to be Anthony Weiner. And if you're the least bit honest, then so do you. Well, it's a very powerful expression of the human recidivism that finds that there are certain um, habitual uh, comforts that die uh, so hard that they don't, in fact, die at all. And so this quote is universal. Um, I don't know of almost anyone who has an habitual issue like he's talking about or like Anthony Weiner apparently has that um, has recovered because there's a further issue here recovered and then unrecovered and I think the tremendous uh, regression possibility of the human person is uh, uh, one of the greatest uh, sort of unacknowledged uh, thoughts that we ever have and it it creates a monster of a life for most people and and it's and it's far worse now because the truth is Anthony Weiner it's obviously got some real issues, but Anthony Weiner has become a two-dimensional or maybe even one-dimensional caricature, and he is irredeemably characterized in the media, maybe deservedly so. But the idea that Anthony Weiner could actually redeem himself is far less possible now that this instant 24-7, 365, everybody hears it all the time, all the parodies, all the pictures, all the outrage, all the all the trolling, all the flaming – you, you you turn any human tragedy into the source of I am better than you self righteousness yeah turn- Schadenfreude and it be, and it's it's made the worst aspects of our humanity the first aspects of our humanity there's no there really isn't a way to to break people down once they find solace in the mob and what what the cyber world is 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 the mob and the mob has decided that Anthony Weiner is an irredeemable horrible person that probably would be stoned to death if if people could do it over the internet yes i agree with that Duo. yeah it's interesting jonathan merritt i think wrote a piece a couple months ago saying that you know this the moral relativism that everybody decried in the late 70s and the 80s that's giving way to a new kind of absolutism but a secular yeah. absolutism which is shame based and so if you are it's not a Judeo-Christian set of morality. So it's interesting. It's, it's less Christian and much less gracious. And so it's absolute in its, its judgments and just absolute. demolishes you. And if you are one of the shamed, you are forever banned. I mean, it's, 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 it's become an incredibly graceless. Oh, more, it's funny that we've become more permissive as a culture. And less gracious and forgiving at the same time. The um, the uh, almost impossible feat for a human being is to really forgive an offender, uh, as a, to really forgive a real offender. And in the 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 we talk about it. I mean, even in the church, we talk about it till till health is over, as it were, twenty four seven. But when it actually comes close to you, a true offense comes close to you, the uh, inability even of the Christian world to pronounce a genuine absolution is almost universal and it's a shock it's if you've ever been in that situation it's a shock and it almost talks you out of being a christian if you don't remember that the core of it still would i mean there was nothing that christ himself couldn't handle but could christ um, have handled twitter no i'm just kidding no i'm I'm serious christ had followers before anybody did on twitter but but he was the original one with followers can you imagine christ farting and what would happen on twitter and how you would have the entire worldwide Twittersphere would say, this can't be the savior of mankind. He has flatulence. And it would be one of these things where the trivial becomes extremely important. The, the, the smallest well, it overrides, it overrides. It overrides the meaning of almost everything. So you've got a presidential candidate that tweets at three o'clock in the morning. What does that mean? It's not like he's writing a, a note to friends. He's sending out 
120 is a characters, 140, 140. 140 characters. He's sending out 140 characters to the entire world at three o'clock in the morning. There's a, there's a perversity there, which I find we we're in a place right now where I honestly don't think we have any clue where we're going to be in 20 years. I think that on every level of society, technology and aesthetics, we are at a place we are in 1875, 1885, where the factories are being built. You know, that we have the internet, but we have no idea that in a generation we're going to go from steam power to some form of turbine engine. So we are in a very strange place in terms of our culture. Let, let me just add one little trivial thing, because I think this is the, this is extreme part of, part of my insufficiency as a human being is that I found great solace in playing football in my youth. And the, it's almost a genetic distraction that I've laid onto my son. And I can tell you that, that sports is the one place where you inevitably break down. You inevitably fail. You fail horrifically and badly and from the people you love the most, which are your teammates. You will always fail in sports, no matter what sport it is. It is a way of becoming human, whether it's music where you're always going to miss a note, flub a line. Those performance activities where you fail are the way you connect your, to your others. Well, what's happened is that sports and music has become so superficial that we lose that. There Now, the person that loses the game is is heinous, is horrible, is mocked. He's a, he's the goat of the highest order. The hero of the game is king of the world. He is He's the best person on the planet. For a minute. For, for a minute. I mean, what ended up happening was the, the, the losing quarterback of the last Super Bowl couldn't handle the press conference, and he left the press conference. He's arguably the best athlete in the world. It was as if he had defiled a six-year-old. It was the end of the world. No one could accept his humanity. No one could actually say, see that the, tr- the truth of the matter is the best part of sports is the failure that leads you to become a better person. Jerry Rice was the best football player that ever lived. When a, when, when a, when a reporter went up to him and said, Jerry, you've had all these great, wonderful experiences in your life. You've won three Super Bowls. You were MVP three times. You've been voted by your peers, the best player that's ever played football. What is your, what are your, what are the, what's your most memorable moments in your career? He looks right at her and says, and no jive says, I was going to break down. He says, I remember the time that I failed my teammates. I remember the time that I failed. And I think that level of, of living with failure is simply not present in the, in this environment. It's interesting. We had a guy on the podcast a couple of months ago named Chris Batchelder, and he wrote a book that was to critical acclaim called the throwback special. And it's a bunch of middle-aged guys who get together every year somewhere in the 95 mm-hmm. Northeast quarter, a cheap, you know, like a holiday inn or something. And they reenact the play from, I guess, 19 to say 84, 87, when Joe Theismann had his leg snapped by Lawrence Taylor they all choose. There's this ritualistic thing where they all choose which player they'll get to be, and all this. Wow. and then they re- just one play. They don't play a whole game. They just and then they're a man down, and this young kid gets to play with him, and he kind of doesn't get it. But then he starts. It's all about these guys who are in midlife and realizing how fragile they are, mm. and the irony of to deal with their fragility, they reenact this ritual where a guy is cut down in his prime and his career is ended. And this is like the cathartic thing. And there's, it's a really dialogue driven novel, but I would, any sports fans, I would recommend it. It's great. Mm, mm. 
I would only add to that, and I wouldn't critique a thing that Duo has said. Uh, I think he's dead right in detail about the um, uh, cultural um, ether that we're living in. The um, challenge that lays before someone in ministry, and it's funny, as you were speaking, Duo, I had this very strong sense that you were being called into the ministry. I just, this, oh, this sense of that, no, I really mean it. I had this sense, you know, this guy really needs to end up as an ordained clergyman. But but what I want to... Standing uh, committee, that's uh, the step. Yeah, that's that's the step. No, unfortunately. Uh, but what I was going to say is that the challenge for someone, person going forward today in the Christian faith is that you almost have to develop a monomania about mm. the, the, the message of the forgiveness of sins to the exclusion of all other voices. It's like you've got the legion of devils around you, and if you were Jesus Christ today, you would have to almost put on kind of uh, things in oh. your ears to, to uh, p- put out all the voices and go forward with the one thing that always breaks through all those voices. As you know, my current favorite movie ever made is called <laughs> The Sentinel from 1977, and at the conclusion of The Sentinel, a situation of such horrific hell-bent horror is happening that there is absolutely no way that the heroine could possibly survive until a powerful priest, played by Arthur Kennedy, blows open the doors, carries a huge crucifix in, and all the demons from hell evaporate. She is prevented from doing something terrible, and it is completely vanquished. That happens in Brooklyn Heights. Now, my point about that is, I think Duo's the only possible antidote or rescue to this unbelievable situation you're describing, which I completely see, and you've brought it home in a poetic manner, is to somehow focus on probably one thing. I, I, I completely agree. What is it that you said a couple of years ago at a conference in Florida that at the heart of the Christian message is a monergism of mercy. Well, I think a monergism of mercy is a, a way of saying, and David Browder, by the way, if you're hearing David Browder, you're being HT'd. Uh, he was one of the first persons who said that to me, but there is a monergism of mercy. Because mm. without mercy, self, the self-righteous win, and it changes every five minutes. And the victims are in life imprisonment, if not death. Yeah. And you might as well forget forget the whole the shooting match, let alone being married. Or being a dad, <laughs> I will tell you that the 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 running away from the idea that you've got a finite time on this earth, the idea that being right is sufficient, it becomes the complete focus when essentially everything you say is assumed to be interesting to everybody in the world. So that when you when you post something on Facebook or you send out a tweet or you write a blog piece, and I do all those things, and you think that they're anything other than you just muttering when you think that because it's available to everybody that it's important and that it is of sufficient importance that nothing else really matters. That's where a lot of people are now. And I think the trivialization of our own actual importance, the trivialization of our own actual actual importance importance into these things that are so ephemeral and meaningless is, is what is what the church could catapult off from and become meaningful again because right now people think of the of where we are this church and religion in general in the northeast not too many other places in america but the northeast maybe the northwest maybe the northwest um they think of us as a one giant boring buzzkill they think of us as the slow moving uh judgmental uh moralistic out of touch 
group of people that will do, will take what we like to do and make us feel bad about it. When the truth is the most devout Christians I know, people like Paul are the people that understand most directly that, that part of the fun of being a human being is making mistakes, but it's also to be, to have a sense of humor about it and to actually revel in the fact that you literally cannot live life without being really stupid and you, and you really can't live life without failing abysmally, but it's what you do with that failure and what, what God does with that failure within you that allows you to transcend that and actually have meaning in other people's lives that may be because of God, but they have no idea it's because of God. What do you say? What did you say at the conference, Paul? We're born into this world to be saved from it. Well, that was uh, Kerouac. Uh, Kerouac said uh, one of uh, a powerful statement that. I came into this world to be saved from it. Now, of course, there's all sorts of things you could say, but at the, the place that I am in my life, that makes sense. I came into this world to be saved from it, and perhaps to help a few others uh, by virtue of my own sense of being dragged out a little bit in love, uh, help a few others be saved from it. Because otherwise, there's something very devious and very overwhelming, like a shadow, a huge cloud coming down, and I, I have to give Duo enormous credit for uh, seeing that. I, as you spoke, I thought thought of Rosalini's movie from 1950, The Flowers of St. Francis, which is a, a sort of reality TV picture of, of, of St. Francis, the, the beginnings of the St. Yes. Franciscan order, and they're all laughing all the time. They're all having a blast. Yeah. They're, they don't take themselves seriously at all. They even have a mentally ill person, a genuinely mentally ill person with them. And the thing is a hoot. And there's something, and Dua, by the way, has that characteristic, because you are also a person of humor. <laughs> you really are. Uh, sometimes almost to the point people don't quite know what to make of it. I mean, I've seen you dance to uh, Pink Cadillac yeah. by Duo, Aretha for, Franklin. For weeks after you're on Unorthodox, my wife and I were quoting your mother's... Um, uh, uh, a statement to your wife when she was pregnant. I love being pregnant. <laughs> should, should I say it for your yes, audience? Yeah. So, so, so let's me, let me paint the visual picture. So it's nineteen it's nineteen eighty nine. There are women there with perms, big perms, shoulder pads. There are doctors. There are um, lawyers. There are MBAs. There are professors. And there, and I am essentially the minion. I'm I'm the Shabbos goy for the for the Orthodox uh, baby shower. So I'm taking care of everything. And my mother, who at that time was probably seventy five, um, had had several cocktails, and and she was listening to to these young women, not so young, the middle age, you know, thirties in their thirties, women talk about their lives and what's going on, and they're pregnant, and they're early, and she just says, you know, girls. You know, girls, I loved being pregnant. I loved being pregnant. I could drink and drink and drink and never get drunk. And I just sort of looked at her and thought about myself and I said, you know, I could have been Frank Lloyd Wright. You know? <laughs> or maybe or maybe an outside linebacker for the Giants. Yeah, like, oh Isn't that funny? Oh, I've never heard you tell that story. I knew your mother. Oh, I remember yes, you your do. mother. Yes. And, and, and the other great one was at that same baby shower. She just exas in an exasperated voice just said, Oh girls, oh girls, if I had been born in your generation, I was just born way too early. If I'd been born in your generation, I never would have had kids. <laughs> Well, that's, wow. That's and I'm a, standing next to her going like, um, would you like another drink, mom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too well. You she once was, again she, left me speechless. Well, she was Betty Draper, basically. Yeah. Very, very pretty and, you know, uh, beyond her time. Gentlemen, this has been wonderful. Paul, would you like to have the last word before we... 
before we end the recording and go off into the world to well, love and serve the Lord. I would just say, uh, if you're going to Barnes & Noble, you won't find the, uh, um, the Sentinel right now because it's all sold out all over the country, but the Blu-ray is out. And I think if you want to really help yourself, uh, get the Blu-ray of the Sentinel and uh, ask yourself what this is really saying. You'll think I'm a crazy person when I say it, about the absolute center of the only thing that can possibly save you from radical despair, given the conditions under which we live in this world. Thank you, friends, and God bless you both. Thank you. Yet again, once more into the breach, my friends, on the Mockingcast. David Zoll joining us, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird Ministries, having just heard from the force that animated you. How do you feel, David? I, uh, you know, feel pretty normal. I I hear from him a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I actually saw, I met the guys that sell DVDs in Union Square with him, and it, with your dad, of course, who we're talking about, and the one of the the DVD salesmen asked Paul to pass along his cell phone number in case I need to get in touch with him. So apparently, I made an impression. I don't know what kind. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> how is Texas? Good. Texas is good. Still hot. You know, headed headed into October. Still ninety five degrees outside, but you know that's a life. So it's good. I mean, you were going to go right from this roundtable discussion to Zumba. I am. That is my uh, Friday liturgy. I have to I tell. The- I have to tell everyone that this this lady who our co-host here is almost finished with her first book, and I'm just bursting at the seams to start promoting it. But I think people are going to be very, very excited. She's not going to. She's not going to toot her own horn. But man, it's great. Thanks, David. David's been a great encourager in this process, and I'm um, I'm excited too. Finish and line. She's still- and she's still finding time to do Zumba. I, 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 you know, I may write about Zumba now. Zumba's important. So I like, I like Zumba. I like the, I like the idea. I'm gonna, I might go to a Zumba class at some point. You should. You definitely should. Yeah. Mm. But only where they play music that's not in English. That's, that's how you know you're in a good Zumba class. I would want like 80s music or something. I don't know. I, I think I would need some, something all like Latin, that. Scott. All Latin. See, it's the only way to do it. It's the only way. Beachbody puts out a, a DVD series, uh, you know, home workout thing called the Brazilian butt lift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently, you know, it's how all the Brazilian models. I feel like get. Scott's figuring out his breakout session for the 10th anniversary. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yeah. So but we have something this week that you brought to our attention, David, that actually talking of fitness, because it's important. The apostle Paul saith that physical training is of some value. Mm-hmm. Actually, wait, the, the tracker apps don't help weight loss. Yeah, you know, I've I've taken a lot of pot shots at Fitbits over the years at this point. Um, in fact, to, to, to the point where anytime anything about Fitbits appears in the media, I get a lot of forwards about it, which is, you know, I'm okay being known for that. Um, and most recently in the New York Times this week, they were they reported on the, a really large 
study of weight loss of people that were, there was sort of a group and they all started, they all wanted to lose weight and they all lost weight together for six months. And they were split up into a group that were given fitness monitors, uh, you know, Fitbits basically, and those who weren't. And um, what they found at the end of a the two-year period of the studies that those who had not worn activity monitors were on average about 13 pounds lighter now than two years ago. Those who had worn the monitors, however, weighed only about eight pounds less than at the start. The doctor in charge of it says, we were definitely surprised. They expected that those who had these monitors would, of course, um, you know, uh, lose more weight because they'd, they'd have a, they'd have it tracked better. But um, the, wonderful ending to the article says people's responses to a monitor strapped to their arm may not always be rational and could result in behaviors that are the opposite of those that the monitor would be expected to to encourage in other words we humans are strange and often our own worst enemies so uh kind of laugh out loud actually paragraph when i when i first read it um but just finding what we all know that the 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 law sometimes increases the trespass uh, self consciousness at least. What if like does it account for like muscle mass and BMI? Because sometimes maybe the people that wear the Fitbit do more intense exercise and are thinner but put on more muscle mass. Doubt it. Mm-hmm. Doubt I it. think that they they. Uh, that they Scott, account, do you they, wear one of these? Because that was sort of a defensive. No, I've I've thought about this. Is the only reason I would get an an Apple Watch because I like I used to work out with a heart rate monitor and loved working out with a heart rate monitor because I thought it was very helpful to know like what range your heart is in because you know like different kinds of like aerobic versus anaerobic stuff and like how you get fit and stuff like that. So, but it's a little expensive. It's a little pricey. And I, the old, the old school heart rate monitors are so clunky. I just want something that's more Star Trek, but I can't like really justify the expense. So yeah, I mean, so, there are, there are people that swear by these things and I don't want to discount their, their testimony as it were, but, uh, a little, you do a, a little, you like uh, to discount a little, you would like to discount. I totally do. So as far yeah. as a, as like a widespread trend in this kind of control yeah. that, which we, we seek to control, uh, measurement, all this stuff, basically d- d- producing its opposite. I think it's amusing because this is a relatively innocuous form of it. So, um, I just, I just wonder if like we can just go ahead and say that everything we discover in behavioral science is Roman seven, like everything, like every single finding just so in some way is Roman seven. I like, mean, some the exact, sometimes you just want to say, Hey guys, read this paragraph. <laughs> just this paragraph. And, uh, and th- then, you know, get back to me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all there. Crazy. Yeah. Every New Testament scholar will tell you, Paul's not really talking about himself there. He's talking about a hypothetical subject mm. that is, yeah, that's so interesting. It's like I love that. exercise, exercise is in telling people texts don't mean what they seem to really obviously mean. That everybody know it's very strange. New yeah, the, the, the one the one passage of Romans that like speaks to every person on the act on the planet immediately that ever I've ever read that to. Uh, they they say, oh well, it it shouldn't. You know, just like yeah. what? Thanks. Yeah. Well, some people that are into Fitbits and these. By the way, did you see that? Like the the new Apple Watch, it's like water resistant to whatever feed or whatever. In that. I've ne- I've never watched like the keynote like all the way through, but Lindy and I did when we were on vacation, which just says something about us. I, I, what I don't know, but they showed like how they tested it 
like they had this like the watch in like water like in this machine and like pounding in the circular motion to test like like and they did it like for months on end to test like if you could be a competitive swimmer and use this watch mm. in the water it's like i was just like who designed a machine for that that's so intriguing that somebody was like i want to design this but there you go some of the people that are into these things are as they say born to run uh-huh. <laughs> nice. see i didn't see the transition nice. coming i should have yeah. seen it coming meta <laughs> yes this past week or about springsteen bruce springsteen has published a memoir a long-awaited autobiography and it was reviewed in the times and i i'm excited to get my hands on it i'm a i'm a, I'm a springsteen fan i wouldn't call myself a springsteen fanatic because uh, i do know quite a few springsteen fanatics um but I thought I'd read a couple of little paragraphs from the review. Um, Springsteen's works entirety, the songs, the music, the guitar, the voice, the persona, the gyrations, the, the recitativos, the whole artifice of the act or what Springsteen calls the sum of all my parts is so dense, involved and authentic seeming as to all but defy what we think we know about how regular human beings make things at ground level. Having been present at many of his performances, this is the reviewer speaking, I've, I've been there a few times myself, I can attest that you're often close to being overwhelmed by what you're hearing and seeing. It's an experience that draws you toward itself. You know, Springsteen, this is me talking, uh, he's very self-consciously uh, uh, takes on the role of a preacher in a lot of his, um, uh, like a religious revival. Preacher. Yeah. I mean, religious, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. But then it goes on to say that Springsteen is preoccupied by his own and his music's authenticity in quotes, even though he understands that the act is ever the act, uh, um, a ruthless calculation to be nothing less than great uh, on his part is powered by a conviction that greatness can exist and be redeeming. So there's something about, um, you know, Springsteen is, is in a lot of ways, a theology of glory. People ask me why I didn't write about him in the book I wrote on music. And it's because I, I love him, but I, I, I don't see, there is a lot of suffering, a lot of weakness, a lot of vulnerability and love, but I, by and large, it's about sort of, uh, you know, transcending on our own, you know, strength, uh, the limitations of the world. But uh, this is the quote I really wanted to read that I was most excited about and makes me most excited to read the book. Um, <clears throat> this Springsteen talking about his vocation, because he's definitely one of these rock stars, I think, that sees it as a vocation, like Bono. Um, he says, those whose love we wanted but could not get, and he's speaking in relation to his father, his father, who he says, loved him but couldn't stand him. He says, those whose love we wanted but could not get, we emulate. It is dangerous, but it makes us feel closer, gives us an illusion of the intimacy we never had. It stakes our claim upon that which was rightfully ours, but denied. In my 20s, as my song and my story began to take shape, I searched for the voice I would blend with mine to do the telling. It is a moment when through creativity and will, you can rework repossess and rebirth the conflicting voices of your childhood to turn them into something alive, powerful, and seeking light. I'm a repairman. That's part of my job. So I, who'd never done a week's worth of manual labor in my life, put on a factory worker's clothes, my father's clothes, and went to work. Good night. That is good. <laughs> yeah, I, um, 
That's I, amazing. I'm, I'm a repairman. Art as a way of reconciling yourself with the wounds of life. And, and, and he sees that, that that's what he's doing for other people. He talks about his work as a service to those who are sort of trying to um, attain the love they wanted but could not get. Um, and put the, putting on a factory worker's clothes, putting on his father's clothes, looking for redemption. There's a, there's a lot to be said, a lot of um, about abreaction, a lot about the redemptive power of art and um, creativity. Uh, but again, it makes me, it's just a really powerful formulation of what he sees his own work as being about. It makes me want to read the book. Sarah, how do they receive Bruce Springsteen in Mississippi? Speak for Mississippians. Sometimes, sometimes you're asked to speak for women, female clergy people, white speak people, for white people. Um. Speak for the deep south right now, please. So speak for Southern. So here's what's. Uh, so Bruce Springsteen was not somebody I ever listened to until I got to college, and. I, I think that was back when I was still getting Spin Magazine. And they did a piece about uh, Devils and Dust, which came out when I was in college. Do you guys know this album? Yeah. It was like the soundtrack of my college years. Like I, I have uh, Jesus Was an Only Son on Yes. Right. Which is, I mean, Jesus Was an Only Son is, it's a song I pull out every single Lent. Because it's it's just, it so beautifully talks about the, the kind of isolation that... Um, that we see in Jesus as he's headed for the cross. I mean, it's an incredible song and Maria's bed is on there. I mean, it's just like, it's like also good. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love Springsteen. I think he's fantastic. And I, I'm super excited to read this book. I, I liked what they wrote about his family. Um, what Ford wrote about his family. Let me see if I can, uh, do, 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 do. he talks about his father a little bit, but then like this plus uh, reticulated, extended, occasionally volatile, but doting family of immigrant descendants, grandparents, aunts, uncles, sisters, and one greaser brother-in-law. Some of them Springsteen says with serious mental illness, described as in quotes, a black melancholy to which he himself falls heir. I mean, it's just, it sounds like a great book. Scott, you're the, come on, you're the Jersey guy. What do you got to yeah. say here? Yeah, Give it to I, us. I was going to say it's not the. I mean, not it's not escaping the limitations of the world. It's escaping the limitations of being from New Jersey. I mean, <laughs> fair enough. I fair enough. I mean, there's something about New Jersey that I love. Uh, yeah, I, I think like you know, I heard him interviewed on Fresh Air years ago, and he was talking about Born to Run. And he said, yeah, that was like, that was the, it was the ballad of my youth. And there is something true to, you know, I think like just to like, when I think about Springsteen, I love Springsteen and like, I, I saw Springsteen for the first time in Pittsburgh live, and it was it was a religious experience for me I, in the true sense of the word. I, 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 there are these moments that like, in, I guess it was when he does The River in Manhattan, that live album, and he tells the story about his father, you know, he like in, in this tortured relationship and how, you know, he would sit all night on the phone, on a payphone, you know, even if it was cold or rainy talking to his girl and how he got in a motor, like he got in a, uh, in a motorcycle accident and he couldn't move, you know, he was bedridden. And while he was bedridden, his dad had a barber come in and cut off all this, to cut his hair short. Mm. And he was crying and crying and crying. And when he, he and his buddies were, their draft numbers came up and he and his buddies like got drunk or something and then went like to go, you know, report. And, you know, his dad was like, man, and while he was getting his haircut, his dad says, you know, the army's going to make a man out of you if they draft you. This week. And he got, he didn't, he got a medical deferment or something. You know, there's something wrong where he couldn't go. He was, and when he says that the crowd 
cheers that he, and he's like, there's nothing to celebrate. Um, mm. And then he says when his dad, he came home and he, he said, they didn't take me. And his dad said, I'm glad they didn't. Mm. And I mean that, I mean that lot. And then he just goes into the river and it's just amazing. And then the other thing that like really changed my relationship to Bruce Springsteen, because I'm a man that's aging as all are we all, we are all terminally ill. Like I've always loved the song Thunder Road. But by the way, Born to Run is the song probably I wish I could do well in karaoke and can't. There's time when I tried it and it's like, it's just not in my range, which is tragic, but true. But Thunder Road is a song I've always loved, but I, when I heard like the unplugged version of it, the whole song changes because the piano version. It's uh, yeah, it, it, it's like you know it, it, because there is a theology of glory tone to it, but then when you when you ramp it down and make it acoustic, it is the song of two people who life has is it, it, David in your dad's word, life has gored them, <laughs> and they're looking for love and looking for love and realizing their fragility and finitude and. And yet, there's a sort of uh, courageous uh, desire to still connect with another, which I think is is mm. is you know, uh, I mean, there's nothing more human than that. We got one last chance to make it real. Retreating these wings on some wings, climbing back. Heaven's waiting down on the tracks Well, oh, oh, come take my hand We're riding out tonight to case the promised land Oh, 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 oh thunder road Oh, thunder road, thunder road Slide out there like a killer On to late night politics Late night in politics Yes, uh, Scott, you yourself wrote something this week that brought to mind. I want to say up front that I'm, I'm not really a. I don't really watch late night. I watch TV late at night, but I don't watch late night. And so you wrote this wonderful thing that brought it all to my attention about uh, the difference in between how Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers have uh, been dealing with the campaign, and Jimmy Fallon has come under a lot of uh, criticism for. Um, Basically, I think is ruffling uh, Donald Trump's hair and basically humanizing him in his interview. And and uh, he also says that he, he he used the kid gloves with Hillary Clinton. He had both presidential candidates on, and there was this uproar that Fallon went so easy on Trump, and it kind of uncovered in in your mind. Um, and I think it's a hundred percent right because you, you you quote a bunch of editorials about this that we've more and more come to expect our um, our late night TV to be these sort of infotainment daily show type things. And that if you're not, if you're not actively trumpeting a bias and doing political humor, you're being extremely irresponsible. And so, uh, you know, what, what, Scott, you can speak for yourself here, but what, what I'll, I'll just say one more thing that you say that, um, you're ask, they're asking late night to not be late night, you know, that it's somehow a travesty if you're just silly, especially if you just humanize someone. We got to the point where humanizing someone because it might violate the quote unquote narratives that we need to uh, believe, whether whatever you are on the political spectrum is seen as a um, dastardly act. I mean, that's, that's a deeply unchristian, I think, way of looking at the world. But um, that, 
you know, or is, is someone not being a good, what do you say, not being good at dry cleaning if they, if they dry clean uh, someone who voted for Trump's, uh, you know, they're being irresponsible. All of a sudden, you're, every single act, the law has come down so hard on people in this form of uh, political activism that every single act you do, including a f- fluff piece on late night TV, if it's not used to its utmost, um, you know, uh, potential for, uh, you know, being politically responsible, then you have failed. And that is a law that none of us can live under, especially not Jimmy Fallon, who is emulates Johnny Carson and sort of being silly and being sort of America's voice. It's because it's not just, you know, uh, East Coast millennials who are watching these shows. It's like, you know, grandparents in Ohio. And anyway, Scott. Um, and do Sarah, we really want Jimmy Fallon taking time away? From rap history with Justin Timberlake to bone up on like Trump criticisms. I mean, yeah. I just feel like that's like such a waste of like, ugh, ew. And you, you showed, you showed that, 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 that clip that Seth got, Seth Myers got so much, uh, you know, back padding for clapter as, as it were. Uh, that is the problem with it is not that it's, it's, um, you know, uh, untrue or something is that it's not funny. It's, yeah, it's, it's just Keith Oberman. I mean, it was a kind of Keith Oberman moment. Like it was okay. He was angry, and then when he starts saying, "No, Trump, you don't get to decide when the racism, birtherism, we decide," and it's like shame, shame, shame. Like you know, it's like the angry mob. It's like yeah, it's just um, that that piece channeled my my rare inner Condon. <laughs> The hot take. You got the hot take out there. You a lot of trouble for that, man. Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, I'm so (laughs) jarred by, like, this need now to make everything have a political, humorous, daily show like Edge. I mean... Like I want, I want to get my news from BBC Public Radio where I don't have to stare at anyone, and they all have lovely accents. And then I want to watch late night television, and I want to laugh. You know what I mean? Like I, I actually need those worlds to stay fairly separate. And I mean the whole thing about you know how um, how easygoing Jimmy Fallon was with the two uh, the two candidates. It's like we want to keep our villains villainous. Right. I mean, that's this whole thing. We want to build this narrative and we don't want to let anyone, uh, anyone make us question, you know, the fact that not only do we not want to vote for these people, but that they're horrible, God awful people, you know, like we can't let anyone take that away from us. That's our righteous indignation. We must hold fast to. So, um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I really appreciate Scott's piece too. I think it's a must read for people given the, the current. Go on, Sarah, go on. Well, I mean, I do. I think, I think it's fantastic. You should definitely read it. So, yeah. It uh, also reminded me, Scott. I can't help but do this transition myself. But it was the, it was the same week that we got this um, report from Religion News Service about uh, religiosity tailing off among sort of you know the religious nuns and uh, you know people. It's it, it, becoming less religious. It's not what they uncovered or what they 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 reported, at least according to these polls, is that it's not necessarily because of uh, politics or something like that. Is that people stop. Um, Believing, and it's, we're kind of in Bart Campolo territory, uh, yippee kaye. But the uh, the um, <clears throat> what 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 I what I'm struck by is again another thing you wrote, Scott. This is the, the Scott uh, <laughs> Jones Power Hour. The uh, no one has stopped believing at all. Are you, are you kidding me? You watch this late night stuff, and and I, I'm starting to feel really old because I'm having my first real pangs of generational disdain, where. Um, it's not at all that that 
uh, people have stopped believing. They've bought so wholeheartedly into this um, partisan uh, narrative that gives everyone so much purpose and distraction, I think, from from death. But uh, my generation probably didn't have that. We were more cynical. But now you have this extremely idealistic generation coming up where everything is, um, uh, you know, uh, only viewed for valuable if, it, if it's containing uh, a a political responsibility or furthering some agenda. And um, I find it to be deeply religious, in, but just unmerciful. It's not, um, it's, it's a religion of law, pure and simple. And so I, I, I find myself really judgmental and condemning and all of a sudden adopting a different kind of law. And it's very ugly, but um, you can't help but feel that the, that this, this uh, uh, atmosphere, which is kind of infected all aspects of our national discourse. I think someone said it's not it's not a, a country with a two party system. It's two countries with a one party system. Yeah. What what we're dealing with right now, and um, it is it is utterly inhuman. And I, mean, I also, as someone who has to get up in a pulpit and preach, sometimes you think you you do have people who's like, oh, it's irresponsible. You've got this audience not to sort of harp on them about uh, social justice or political candidates, and you're thinking, what are you are you kidding me? They're not. Because these because the whole time I read these this, candidates are going to yeah I mean they're going to come and go yeah you're, you're going to die yeah. and you're going to have what you're really dealing with in life is the the your self condemnation and the fears you have and the anxieties you have and the judgments and who's is there any kind of word of comfort or absolution for people anywhere to be found can't we reserve Sunday morning for that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I aggressively will stand for that as much as I can. What, well, I just, that's a long rant, no, but the whole, yeah, but it's fantastic. The whole time I was reading this, I kept thinking we might as well be talking about preaching. I mean, right. Like we might as well be talking about this whole thing about, you know, if I see one more person on a Facebook thread, talk about how the church needs to be addressing any number of issues. And then they quote that quote about journalism, you know, the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand, that is not in scripture and not about Christianity, but about journalism, (laughs) um, which is what I write regardless if I know the person is what I write in the thread. I'm like, I post a little link. I'm like, heads up. This wasn't in the gospel. You know? Um, I mean, go Sarah. They, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not well behaved, but the, I, I actually thought of, I thought of <laughs> preaching when I was reading this quote from Johnny Carson. And I, I know I'm going to be raked across the coals for saying that, but Johnny Carson talks about um, how he kept politics out of his program. And he, and he said in my living room, I would argue, um, in my living room, I would argue for the liberalization of abortion laws, divorce laws, and there are times when I would like to express a view on the air, but I'm on five nights a week. I have nothing to gain by it and everything to lose. I have nothing to gain by it and everything to lose. I mean, that's, to me, that's like, I was like, that's, that's why you keep politics out of the pulpit. Like, you have nothing to gain by it and everything to lose. Like, y- you're offering no consolation and no comfort to people and you will you will lose them and they will be lost because of you you know yeah gosh the amount of people coming to our church these days this past week we had you know i think four transfers who were telling us they went to other churches in our denomination were saying we just got tired of the politics yeah. and you had two people who were who were democrats and you had two people that were yeah. republicans two couples coming and they said you know we just we get that every single other place in our life right now uh, can't we talk about life and death uh, and 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 something existential, yeah. uh, and something uh, comforting and true and uh, absolving. So, Scott, you're, you, what, what do you got to say? I once heard Stanley Harris give a lecture, and you know he's got that great voice. Like, 
I'm just, I'm, I, you know, I don't know shit. I'm just, I'm a Mason's son from Texas. But he's like, you know, he said, <laughs> the Christian faith is political. That, it is totally political. And the most political act I've ever seen a Christian do, I know baptized Christians who have adopted mentally handicapped children. And that's a political act. And the people that do that kind of thing know politicians are full of shit. <laughs> Yeah, like, there's this like moment where, like, yeah, like, there's this kind of like, you know, one of the most political acts, if beautiful political acts, is like the Pope, uh, Pope John Paul, allowing himself to be filmed giving addresses, drooling on himself with his handshaking with Parkinson's to say that, like, this is what the story of our lives is. You know, there, there is a politics of Jesus, but it's not the blood sport. It's, it's, it's a sort of enacted, you know, prayer for the coming of a gracious kingdom. So kind of what your dad talks about in, in Grace and Practice, David, about, you know, his, I, I encourage all of our listeners to go read that chapter in Grace and Politics. It's amazing. But, you know, I was listening to Howard Stern this week, as is often my custom. And he was talking about, because I think about how f- abstract some of the political stuff gets. And not that, I'm, and, you know, I say, I'm a pretty political person. I'm not, I watch a lot of, I watch too much cable news and that kind of thing. But Stern was talking about going out to dinner with his childhood friends that he went to summer camp with. Like, and sleepaway camp was the best six weeks of his life because his parents, like his neighborhood went from kind of white to poor and mostly black pretty rapidly as a kid. And they were like the only white family that stayed. He's always like, my mom, he's like, my mom would have been one of the Jews that wouldn't have left uh, Egypt. Who is this Moses? I'm not going. Some Pharaoh's not kick running me out of my Egypt. You know, like, so he's like, I just used to get my ass kicked every day. Like, and, 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 and he talked about like, you know, I, I just was looking for the summer camp six weeks of like, you know, getting away from like bu- being bullied and harassed. And, and, he said, you know, I just recommend to anybody, if you have childhood friends that make you laugh, go out to dinner with them once in a while. And he was really just so deeply moved. And then one of his listeners, like, calls in and says, yeah, you know, I know some people from Roosevelt. So I said, yeah, did you guys, did any of your family know Stern? And they're like, oh, yeah. My uncle was like, yeah, we used to beat his ass. He's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I liked him. We used to beat his ass every day. You know, th- so there you go. I mean, I think that's where reality is lived. Yeah. There you have it. Born down in a dead man's town. The first kicker took us when I hit the ground. In the block of dog, I can beat you much. Till you spend half your life just to cover him up now. Born in the USA, I was born in the USA, I was born in the USA. David, how is your phone? Are you getting an iPhone 7 Plus? <laughs> I went to the uh, Apple store yesterday and they were just basically like, <laughs> they just laughed at me like, oh, you want a 7 Plus, do you? Yeah, forget I was like, about it. It's, you just cannot get them. Well, um, I think you're transitioning here to the Andrew Sullivan's incredible essay this week. I used to be a human being and it's about um, his uh, technology induced nervous breakdown for a couple of years ago, something to which I feel, you know, as uh, someone who has run a website now for almost 10 years, it, I feel, uh, I, I didn't want to read it because it's too close to home. And I also didn't want to read it because I'd written um, my own version of it, uh, a, you know, about a six months ago uh in this article what what a thousand two thousand blog posts taught me about the internet and uh 
I came to a lot of the same conclusions. And I say that not to toot my own horn, but because I was embarrassed that I have, uh, have gone back to a flip phone, uh, sorry, back to a smartphone after, uh, very loudly trumpeting my, um, desire to and and actual you know uh, eventual ad- adoption of a flip phone instead of a smartphone i would it, like to take some credit for the harassment you mentioned in that. yes i'm like dude just get a freaking iphone again like i i was i found it insufferable well and frankly the world the world has just moved on and i talk about why i did that and i uh it got to be more of a headache than i than a than, than a than a liability for me practically speaking. Um, but he talks about, we're, we're back again to this faith uh, secularism divide. He says, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be born. And um, he says that we're basically distracting ourselves. This is also what, um, you know, Alan Jacobs has said, what, what other people have said in regards to our um, extreme Politization of ever, politicization of, of absolutely everything is that we're distracting ourselves from the reality of death. And one of the ways Americans do that is through this culture of getting things done, uh, the deadliness of doing, which is what Oakshot talks about. Um, and that's a way of avoiding the quiet because what happens in the quiet? Well, not only do we encounter God, but we feel uh, sad and we feel, it's, a, it's a Louis C.K. thing. It's, you know, what, what, who am I if I'm not achieving something? You know, uh, but he, he feels that we need to return to sort of kind of a form of monasticism, or at least not uh, th- th- that the the monks should be doing the same thing that the yogis are doing. That they should be opening their doors. And I, I found it really, um, really compelling. He also talks about church and and as as being uh, the liturgy, uh, the mass being a place where there are silences and pauses. And you know, as someone who um, works at a liturgical church where I have to be present at four services on Sunday. At first I thought, oh, that's such a drag. But now, you know, I, you can't pull your phone out in the middle of that. And it tends to be a huge recharging and relief to you have to go through it four times. Um, you're really kind of forced to sit with yourself and to hear the prayers and to pray your own yourself. And uh, that's a real... Um, that's actually a real freedom in the, you know, that, that looks like an obligation. And he says that, and I, I really a- appreciate it. I think he's also, he, I do think he doesn't talk enough about justification as relates to our smartphone devices. He does talk about affirmation. Um, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's all there. I think it all plays into the same boiling pot of um, uh, non uh, merciful uh, living that is, um, killing us, but I think my hope is that it will bring uh, others as well as Andrew Sullivan to their knees in a way that looks uh, for God, uh, the God who's not divorced from noise, but also dwells in silence. LBH, you really can't pull out your smartphone during liturgy. You can. (laughs) You can. Wait, did you say LBH? What is LBH? Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you have it. The, the, the Twitterization that of discourse in, in hashtag, real time. <laughs> hashtag my three steps. Um, yeah, I loved the, the the whole thing about him getting sick was like I really related to that because last spring, you know, I was speaking at a lot more churches, and it was a it was a really intense spring in our household. And I, you know, how you feel like some like and there was so much technology in my life, and like the whole thing about there, there's a treadmill you can't get off of. I mean, it, I totally related to the stuff he was saying. And then 
like in a three week period, we had the death of the dog, the active shooter in the neighborhood and a massive car accident that totaled my car. And I'll be honest, it felt like a sovereign God move. Like it really did because it brought me to my knees. It slowed everything down. I didn't have any choice. And um, I have yet to be back where I was last spring. I mean, I, I totally related to this. And I also kept thinking of something... Um, one of my colleagues at St. Martin says, uh, a guy who who has great one-liners in meetings, Alex Large, uh, said... Uh, Speak, speaking in Oklahoma. Speaking in Oklahoma, speaking that's in Oklahoma. right. He's, he said... He, Next month. We were talking about sort of the relentlessness of life right now and how these people get sick, car accidents happen, these things happen. And, and, and Alex said, God is going to get his Sabbath one way or another. And... As I was reading this guy's piece, I kept, you know what I mean? Like, you're going to rest. Like, it may not be the way you want it, but it's going to happen, If especially if you're not making any space for it. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a great piece. How many jokes does he take about that name, Alex Large? Um, I would imagine quite a few. But I'm just, I'm most of the ones are inappropriate. I'm thinking about, like, I'm just sitting, sitting here like, oh, gosh, I have so many. I just want to go to work. Right I now. call him Father Large when I see him in the hallway. So, yeah. Oh, boy. I got to yeah. stop. I got to stop. This is, it's a family show, kids. It's a family show. And in conclusion, as we go, because I'm going to get Sarah off to Zumba. I'm sure David's probably doing probably. Zumba today, too. You seem like a Zumba oh, person. There's a really touching story that you brought to our attention really touching i was i clicked on the headline maybe this is just uh, uh more evidence of m- either my own cynicism or the uh, politicization of that we're talking about but in the new york times magazine there's a little uh, thing in the september 16th issue called of prayers and cures and very pretty girls written by i i'm gonna get this name wrong but it's a beautiful name ayasata Masaikwe Amili, I think it is. She's a um, emergency room doctor, and she talks about growing up in Sierra Leone on the campus of a college there in uh, West Africa. Her father was a professor, and um, her she talks about her mother and the food they ate, and she said that they weren't very religious people, and it was a place where, where Muslims and Christians sort of actively meet, though, and they had been baptized. <clears throat> but then all of a sudden, one day, uh, her mother gets really sick, like really sick. And uh, her uncle uh, just says he's going to bring his five Bible study friends to pray for the mother. And um, so they, they come over and she notices, uh, the daughter notices that there's an extremely, uh, what she says is a very beautiful young woman, a student who is in the prayer group. And uh, then she talks about how um, they pray and they talk about, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, God, we thank you for your mercy and for bringing us here today. And they lay hands on her. I think someone speaks in tongues. Um, Jesus has said that wherever two or more gather in his name, there you will be. And and, and the pretty girl is sitting there crying and and they pray for uh, her mother and her mother is healed. Her mother is healed. Now, this is the New York Times speaking. My mother's eyes were open. She wasn't sweating. My mother swept well that night. In the morning, she had my father and me pray with her in Thanksgiving. That Sunday and every subsequent Sunday, we went to church. But we never saw my uncle at church. When my mom finally confronted on this, his answer was simple, as truthful answers often are. I was in that group because I liked that girl. But she said I wasn't Christian enough for her, so I gave up the act. I laughed hard. This is the young girl speaking. But my mother counseled me sternly. Remember, we are none of us perfect, but God can use us to do great things. 
and that's the end of the article. And I thought to myself, well, that's, um, that's beautiful. And I think that that's uh, my hope um, as someone who gets it wrong with technology and with politics and with relationships. And um, I hope it is, uh, is the hope that I would love for uh, more of the um, world that is just uh, caught up in distractions and, uh, and uh, you know, condemnatory action. I would love for us all, would that we all were not only healed, but also used despite um, or maybe even because of our uh, transparent infirmities. Yeah, I, a couple of years ago, I came across this Episcopalian definition of unction, which I I've, I refer to with some frequency, uh, explaining why. And you all are both Episcopalians, right? And they still do anointing for mm-hmm. the sick or unction. And the the explanation goes as follows. The sacrament, this sacrament exists for the purpose of healing, to restore a person to physical, emotional, and spiritual wholeness. When we anoint and pray for people, we ask God to release them from anything that prevents a person from being whole. Christians recognize that there is a difference between being healed and being cured. In the sacrament of unction, we pray for healing and wholeness, which may or may not include a cure. And I, I, I thought, like, anytime healing takes place, whether there's a cure or not, it, it's a miracle akin to the virgin birth or the resurrection from the dead. Mm. Sarah, I hope you experience wholeness at oh, Zumba. Well. I hope uh, you play a Springsteen song on the, on the fade out here. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might do that. We might do that. All right, gang, I will talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. The show is produced, as always, by yours truly, Scott Jones. And I'm pleased to announce now I'm ably assisted by our production assistant, David Peterson. As always, you can find any of the content we refer to on our website, ember.com. If you like what you heard, drop by iTunes, give us a rating or a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next week. Grateful.